0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world.
1: Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. I'm David Braddon Mitchell from the Philosophy Department. In 1962 a man called John Anderson died, who was the first of a string of fairly iconic professors of philosophy at this university. And the one nice thing that happened uh, for philosophy as a result of that was that he left a very generous bequest to the philosophy department. It was designed to be used in the first instance for editing and preparing for publication his own works, And then after that happened, it was designed for any philosophical use. After 50 years, it was decided that his own works had been adequately edited and prepared, and the money was turned towards a series of Anderson fellowships. These are fellowships for distinguished philosophers to come to Australia and come to the University of Sydney and research with us and teach with us for a period of time. There were two kinds of these fellowships regular ones and distinguished ones. And the program began about three years ago and we've had, I think now, six regular fellows. But it took us a long time to find someone truly suitable to begin the distinguished program. And late last year we found her and she's Professor Amy Thomason of Dartmouth College. Professor Thomason is the stone professor of intellectual and moral philosophy at Dartmouth College, and the author of Ontology Made Easy and many other things you'll find on her website, AmyThomason.org. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome Amy to Australia, to Sydney and to this room to talk to us this evening. Amy
2: Good evening. that's working. Well, thank you so much for the generous introduction, and it's a real honor to be here as the Anderson Distinguished Fellow at the University of Sydney, and it's a big honor that you all have chosen to spend your evening coming out here, so thank you so much for being here. What I'm going to talk about tonight, as you know, is what philosophy can do. Now, philosophy, of course, has a sort of proud historical tradition We all might have high hopes for it, and presumably all of you have some interest in and hopes for philosophy that would bring you out here on a Tuesday evening. So we tend to traditionally think of philosophy as potentially offering a path to truth, right? It's sort of deep insight about the world or knowledge of the world and its nature. But that's a conception of philosophy that has turned out to be problematic, difficult to sustain. What I want to talk about tonight is a little bit, I'll take us through a very, very brief history of how philosophy has been thought of. I'll talk about why problems arose for this conception of philosophy, both historically and also more recently in my lifetime, in my time as a philosopher, even. And then I'll talk about how I think we can reconceive, reconceptualize the best of what philosophy always has done and also of what it can do in a way that shows that it can continue to be relevant, worldly, and interesting, and be potentially transforming the way we live. All right, so first, a very brief history, right? As you probably all know, the word philosophy comes from the Greek simply for a love of wisdom, right? And in the early days, right, philosophy was not distinguished from other areas of discovery, other areas of investigation. So take it back to the earliest days of the Western tradition, right, usually traced back to the pre-Socratics, right? The pre-Socratic philosophers, writing especially from the 6th to 5th century BCE, were engaged in a kind of cosmological and physical speculation. They thought of themselves as inquirers into nature. Now, what distinguished them from other Greek thinkers, earlier Greek forms of wisdom was that they thought of the world as inherently intelligible, right? Using reason, using investigation and observation, not just using myth, not just appealing to the supernatural, right? And so if you recall some of the sort of more famous fragments of the pre-Socratics that have come down to us, right, you see them offering theories about what the world is like and about what its fundamental nature is. And still a lot of my colleague metaphysicians all around the world will think of themselves as engaged in that task of trying to tell us what exists, what's fundamental, what's the nature of the world. So we saw, for example, with the pre-Socratic Thales suggesting famously that everything comes from water, diogenes, that all things are alterations of air. Right. Moving along through the history of philosophy, at breakneck speed here, right, you can see that the earlier philosophers, right, generally were not the kinds of specialists that people like myself and my colleague philosophers are now. They were interested in wide ranges of human knowledge, right? So Aristotle did a ton of work in biology. This is a, a picture of Aristotle studying the animals. I've got you there. Um, Descartes, of course, is as famous for his work in mathematics as in philosophy, right? We all started to know of him through the Cartesian coordinates we learned about back in high school, right? Um, also did important work in physics. Um, Barclay did some very serious studies in optics, as well as the philosophy that I still teach of his. Um, Kant gave lectures on geology and astronomy, as well as what we would now just teach in a philosophy classroom, right? So in the early days, philosophy as a love of wisdom wasn't distinguished from a sort of general inquiry into the world, a general search for knowledge and understanding. And so you still see it defined often as things like, this is one of the dictionary definitions, philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. So we end up with what you might call, on this sort of vision, a kind of discovery model of philosophy. That philosophers are engaged in trying to discover deep truths about the world and what it's like. And you see philosophers both way back in olden days, you see Aristotle talk about what the good life for man is for example right or Socrates asks what justice is and what courage is right if you're trying to make some kind of discoveries and you see that very much up until the present day holding up philosophy as a process of discovery right? here's some other sort of presentations of discoveries in the modern philosophers right so Descartes presents his view that there are two kinds of substance fundamentally in the world there's thinking things that are unextended and immaterial, and there's material things that are extended and unthinking. Right? Berkeley, again, presented as if it was a discovery. The idea that ordinary objects, like this lectern here, are really what their true nature is that they're collections of ideas. Right? So again, we see these kinds of philosophical views presented in the sort of mode of discoveries. What happened? Well, then we got some trouble, right? So The period running from the 17th century to the 19th century, what was once natural philosophy or a general love of wisdom or inquiry into the world started to subdivide. What we now think of as the natural sciences began to split off from what was sort of left behind, whatever that is, So first we see sciences like biology, astronomy, physics, and chemistry splitting off from what's left behind, right? And we see the natural sciences, the empirical sciences, during this period get self-conscious about their methodology, right? one, at least one landmark of which is Francis Bacon's Novum Organum from 1620. That's Bacon's picture you have up there. Right? So you see the sciences get more and more self-conscious about their methods. You see the development of the scientific method and empirical methods for knowledge. And you start to see more and more progress. More and more progress in the sciences, right? As you get more and more results that enable the development of better technology, better medicine, where we get convergence on results increasingly throughout the empirical sciences. What's left for philosophy to do then? Is there anything left, or does it just become the sciences? Well, an initial answer that was popular in the 19th century was to say, look, the natural sciences study external physical phenomena. Philosophy is to study internal mental phenomena. We will turn our gaze inward and study these mental phenomena. that's our area of study, right? Okay, that didn't work out so great either. First of all, the sort of introspectionist results of this kind of study, there was no convergence on whatsoever, there are problems with the methodology. Second of all, of course, then by about the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, psychology started to peel away from philosophy, right? And you can actually sort of pinpoint that At a particular stage in history, the Austrian philosopher Franz Brentana, who was writing in the late 1800s, right, and wrote about psychology, his most famous book, Psychology from an Empirical Standpoint, had two really famous students. One of them was Edmund Husserl, who had become the founder of phenomenology, one of the main 20th century schools of philosophy, about which more later, and the other was Sigmund Freud, right? So you can see philosophy and psychology branch off right about that point, right? You trace it back to someone who was at the time, characterized as a philosopher. All right, so we can't say that philosophy involves the study of inner mental phenomena and the science is external physical phenomena, and we get psychology developing empirical methods for studying mental phenomena. So the question, again, is what's left? What's left behind? <laughs> Doesn't look good, right? So the path to truth is starting down to this. Right, we've got the sciences diverging They're getting increasing clarity It seems like, at least about how to go What seems to be left behind With the diverging systems Again, if you look into sort of 19th century philosophy Of the sort of Neo-Kantians And the Hegelians and so on Looks like you're stuck with endless quarrels right? You've got no clear idea What the methods are for moving ahead Or for trying to resolve the endless disputes We've got increasingly diverging Metaphysical systems And in a lot of ways, this is still what's going on now. I mean, it seems like every journal, every new edition of a journal in Metaphysics comes out with somebody else's new system, right? Nothing like convergence, only increasing proliferation. So we ended up with what, in the early 20th century, has been referred to as the identity crisis in philosophy. What's left for us philosophers to do? So as Gilbert Ryle put it, in his little, it's like a very short, Autobiographical section in a collection uh, of his works. And he says, We philosophers, wait, let me get this here, we're in for a near lifetime of inquiry into our own title to be inquirers. Right? And the question of what philosophy can do legitimately is one that occupied Ryle throughout his career. Again, in a sort of historical work by Frederick Baisa, he describes the situation this way Now that the empirical sciences covered every sphere of reality, and now that the old a priori methods of speculative idealism had proven themselves bankrupt, it seemed as if there was no place anymore for philosophy in the Globus Intellectualis. What then should philosophy be? What could it do? All right, this is the puzzle. Now, in the early 20th century, when this puzzle was so prominent that it led Ryle to say he was in for a near lifetime of inquiry into his own title to be an inquirer, there was a sort of fairly common answer to what philosophy can do, to what's left over. And that's what you might think of as a sort of conceptualist model of philosophy. One that gives up the view that philosophy is out to make worldly discoveries. And instead says, so hang on, there's a division of labor here, right? So the sciences can do empirical work. Philosophy can be engaged in conceptual work, working conceptual analysis, for example. And so you see in the early 20th century, the first few decades of the 20th century, philosophers otherwise as different as Wittgenstein, Husserl, A.J. Ayer, and there's Ryle, right? All kind of converging on this idea that philosophy in some sense involves or should involve conceptual work. Whether it's work in distinguishing sense from nonsense, as Wittgenstein would have put it, or work in trying to uncover the basic structure of our conceptual scheme, as Strawson would have put it, or work in trying to figure out the logic of consciousness that enables us to represent the world at all, as Husserl would have put it, plenty of differences among these guys, right? But still, they all agreed on this conception, that there's a sort of division of labor, and that philosophy is on the side of the conceptual, the science is on the side of the empirical. And that was about 100 years ago. So move fast. But there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with that kind of answer. Right. Here's my contemporary colleague, Ted Sider, who expresses it in clear form, right? He says, uh, who would prefer exploring our perhaps parochial conceptual schemes to exploring the fundamental features of reality? Right. There's this feeling that if a philosophy just involves conceptual work, that that's sort of shallow, uninteresting, maybe just parochial, maybe it's just about what our concepts now in early 21st century Australia happens to be, right? Nothing universal or deep or interesting, just about language or words. And so metaphysicians, especially, and that's the area of philosophy that gets listed on my CV as I'm in, right, as my being in. Um, metaphysicians, especially, like to think of themselves as investigating the world, not language or concepts with that being something relatively shallow, local, Uninteresting. There are also some philosophical reasons for worrying about the approach, including Quine's criticisms of the notion of analyticity, changes in our theory of meaning. Those who were externalists thought that meanings were determined by the world, not by us, not by what's in our heads. So you can't try to analyze meanings uh, in the way that, say, ordinary language philosophers wanted to. So there's a lot more behind the scenes there. At any rate, that dissatisfaction with the approach really led to major changes, again, in the way philosophy was done. there was a huge backlash against the idea that philosophy is primarily involved in conceptual work. And that backlash still goes on. So we've had, again, in my lifetime, something like a return to the discovery model of philosophy. So the idea that philosophy in general, and metaphysics in particular, can be and should be engaged in discovering sort of worldly truths, not just analyzing our language or concepts. And so you see metaphysicians of my generation working obsessively on questions of the form of existence questions. What exists, or as some prefer to put it, what really exists? You have to bang a table for that. Do ordinary objects like tables and chairs really exist? Do minds exist? Does consciousness exist? Do moral properties exist, right? All of these are questions Hotly debated, again, in the manner of discovery. Some have come to move on in the last, I'd say just the last 15 years or so, to say, look, existence questions, maybe they're not so interesting for certain reasons. I have my recent book, um, tries to show in part why they're not very interesting. But maybe what we should really be doing in metaphysics is asking fundamentality questions, asking what's fundamental or what grounds what. Where metaphysicians think this is a metaphysical job, not one that we just wait and see what the physicists tell us. Or maybe we're concerned, as Ted Seidel would put it, with structure questions. Maybe those are the really basic ones. We want to know which terms or concepts carve the world at its joints. We want to know about the structure of the world, not just about existence or fundamentality. All right, so these are all ways of describing what metaphysics can and should do, right, that are popular today as the discovery model has returned. But it's got problems, right? There's big problems with the discovery model that practitioners have tended to not, I think, take seriously enough all the time. One of them is probably the most obvious, an apparent rivalry with science, right? Again, philosophers have known about this for a long time, you know, since the 17th century. I took you back there a few minutes ago, right? But they like to forget about it. And the problem has been brought back to the public attention not that long ago with the book by Stephen Hawking and Leonard Blodnoff um, and Hawking puts it this way, right? This got a lot of public press. Maybe some of you saw it at the time. I had lots of outraged posts by philosophers on my Facebook feed, right, when this happened. Um, so Hawking put it this way. People have always asked a multitude of questions. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. And of course, if you set up philosophy, if you set up particularly the task of metaphysics, as investigating what exists, what's fundamental, what the nature of the world is, you set yourself up for exactly this rivalry, and you better have something to say about it. That's not the only problem facing the discovery model of philosophy. Another one I've already alluded to is failures of convergence, right? Again, philosophical theories, as I've mentioned, and positions seem to just keep proliferating with no clear way to decide among them. Here's a way of quantifying it. There was this um, Phil survey that was done about um, 2009, I believe it was. And what happened was they sent out a survey of 30 questions, central philosophical questions, like um, does free will exist, for example, uh, is there Are there analytic truths and so on? They asked about 3,000 philosophers where there were, almost all of them were PhDs in philosophy. Most were either professors or uh, grad students and so on. Got them to survey their opinions on these philosophical questions. And the philosopher, Brian Francis, did a statistical analysis of the results that came in. And based on the divergence of answers, he said, we should expect the average philosopher to get between 47% and 67% right, again, if you think of these in terms of there's a right and wrong answer, right? Not very impressive, right? And we're supposed to be the experts, yeah? I certainly hope my medical experts do a bit better than that, right, in their area of expertise. What do we do about this? Well, Brian Francis's suggestion was, look, this should just tell all us philosophers that we should stop thinking we know anything about these matters. We should suspend judgment on all these core philosophical questions. Give up. Right? So there's a thought that if you really take seriously this divergence, and you think that there's these sort of facts of the matter out there that philosophy should discover, right, that this gives us reason to just give up, suspend so judgment indefinitely, go do something more useful, right, if we can't come to knowledge of the answers of these deep questions. So we seem left in a kind of dilemma. right? What can philosophy do? Right? You can go with the traditional discovery view and think of philosophy as aiming to discover deep facts about the world and its nature and what exists. But then you've got to contend with this very strong appearance of a rivalry with science, a rivalry it seems philosophy is bound to lose given our divergences, given that we have no clear method, and so on. And you've got to contend with the divergences in answers, the failures of convergence, and the resulting kind of skepticism that we're just discussing. Or you can retreat to this more modest conception of the role of philosophy that, as I said, was popular about 100 years ago, that that sort of reigned in both the ordinary language tradition and phenomenology and so on, and think of philosophy as capable of analyzing our language or our concepts. But then you've got your own problems. It looks like you're giving a view, at least this is what the critics say, that's shallow that's not worldly. And here's another problem you might worry about. If philosophy is there to analyze our language or concepts and their meanings, wait, aren't linguistics or cognitive science better positioned to tell you the meanings of our words than philosophy? Right? And so with the emergence of linguistics and cognitive science, right, you get a worry even for this sort of modest conception of a kind of rivalry. In fact, while getting this sort of same bit of autobiography, He reports, when he was an undergraduate at Oxford, um, telling his tutor, Patton, um, that he had this idea that philosophy could engage in the analysis of meanings, and that Patton turned to him and said, "Ah, Ryle, how then do you distinguish philosophy from lexicography, right? So Ryle was concerned with this. Also, what can we do? Well, I think something's been forgotten in this dichotomy, right, I think there's another kind of question that we're all concerned with in our lives, that we have to be concerned with. And it's not covered by this. It's not a question about what exists or what's the nature of the world. It's not an empirical, factual question that we should expect to hand off to the natural sciences. Nor is it a simple descriptive question about how our language or concepts actually, in fact, work. Instead, it's that fundamental question, what should we do? And all of its related questions all these ought questions, all these norm questions, all these should questions. Look, a lot of philosophy's traditional work can easily be understood in these terms, right? If there's one area of philosophy that even politicians and so on tend to respect the legitimacy of its ethics, right? Because people recognize that even though the natural sciences have become very good at figuring out what is the case, that doesn't necessarily give them any special training or skill in figuring out what should be the case or what we ought to do. Yeah. So ethics conceived of as a matter of figuring out how we ought to live, how we ought to treat one another, what kind of government we should live under, whatever. Right? These are all clearly ought questions that don't seem so much to rival the sciences. Think about logic, right? Logic, again, can easily be thought of as a study of how we ought to reason in order to make sure that if we've got true premises, that we reach a true conclusion. What forms of reasoning ought we to engage in? Epistemology, again, large chunks of it can very easily be conceived as a question of how we ought to go about trying to acquire knowledge, whether it's through logical reasoning or empirical or statistical kinds of generalizations, what sorts of procedures ought we follow in trying to gain knowledge, right? And that's a question you have to answer if you're even going to develop the scientific method. Right? That's an answer to these kinds of questions. Yeah. The hardest sell for this kind of vision of what philosophy can do is my subbranch, metaphysics. Right? How can we understand metaphysics though? In this light, it really seems like metaphysics is that corner of philosophy that's concerned with investigating the world and its fundamental nature. But what I think is that metaphysics too can be reconceived in this light, as addressing questions not or not just anyway of how we do think or talk but of how we should, of what concepts or language we should employ. And what I want to try to do next is to try to convince you that this matters, that this is a worldly matter, it's not just shallow or parochial, it's not just about words, Right? but it matters for how we live and for what we do. It matters for worldly reasons. So there's at least two different kinds of work that can be done under this heading. Conceptual engineering is usually thought of as questions about how we can revise, redesign, or construct the terms and concepts we need to serve some purpose. And then there's a sort of further back, zooming out question of conceptual ethics, of what concepts we should use to think or talk about the world at all. So before I go on to how this can be used to understand what metaphysics has done and can do, let me try to convince you that this kind of work in conceptual choice and linguistic choice matters for worldly reasons. So think about the ways in which our language and our thought and our concepts matter. The great social revolutions of the last century have all been tied up with changes in the way we think and talk, changes in our vocabulary, changes in our conceptual scheme. Think about the ways that our racial concepts have changed over the last hundred years, not just the terms we use, but also the various sorts of divisions and categories we employ, where some of the old divisions of a hundred years ago are no longer even in play or relevant, as well as the way we think about race changing, from thinking of it as if it was some sort of natural kind to thinking of it as a sort of social construction. Think about the way that our thinking about and talking about emotional, behavioral, and cognitive differences has changed, over the last hundred years. But you can go through and get there's a fascinating history of terms for these things, right? Initially, people would speak of a madman or a lunatic, quite simply, right? Then there was an attempt to sort of medicalize these terms and get these sort of official terms, which are all eventually became sort of unusably insulting, right? So idiot, fool, imbecile, simpleton, moron, and feeble-minded were all once technical terms with very subtle different definitions, right? You can look at a Fools were a subclass of simpletons, I believe it was, and so on, right? And moron was a term invented specifically to not be insulting, right? And then it became, yeah, right. So these things have changed over time, right? And now we don't think of them in that way at all. Think of the way our ways of thinking about these kinds of differences has changed. From thinking of them in supernatural terms, God made you that way. It's a Christian, it's a creature of God, and that's it. Right. So thinking of them in medicalized terms, and now for at least some kinds of conditions that get classified as disability, thinking of them in social terms, right, as problems that arise from the way our institutions are set up as much as from any differences in the way our brains or bodies function, right, which would not be problematic in another setting. Words matter, right. Here's a quote, right, um, from the director of the Mental Health Association of Rhode Island. She says, "These terms for differences in." Um, cognitive and physical capabilities. So this is one of the last ground fights for civil rights. Those living with mental illness have been marginalized, discriminated against, and treated as an other or an underclass throughout history. Language is one of the ways that we dehumanize people. It's the mechanism of oppression and dehumanization. So in arguing for changes in how we treat people with mental illness, she's arguing for changes in the way we think about it and the way we talk about it. Think about other conceptual revisions that have gone on, again, in all our lifetimes, right? Think about the changes in the way we understand and define and legally define marriage, right, that have happened in recent years. Think about the change in valence of the use of the word queer, right, that has happened, again, within my lifetime to now being, having a sort of positive valence and having a unifying kind of force. Think about the sort of efforts of feminists to say, stop calling grown women girls, because tied up with all of these terms are also, it's not just a description, it's also norms about how these people are to be treated, how they're to be regarded, right? What else follows from being so classified? Think about the changes in the way we think about rape, right? To the sort of current understanding, where yes, you can be raped even in the context of a marriage. There's also cases of conceptual engineering, not just changes in old concepts like marriage, which has been around a long time, but building, constructing new concepts where there weren't any equivalent ones before, right? Again, here's some, the concept of human rights, the concept of sexual harassment, which was introduced by Cornell University activists in the 1970s, the concept of a hostile environment, of genocidal rape, which is a recent introduction, I think in the 90s, after the Bosnian War, uh, introduced by a philosopher, actually, who also spent a lot of time interviewing the victims in Bosnia. Think about the concept of autism, right? A very recent innovation in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatrists, right? All of these are conceptual innovations, and they're conceptual innovations that matter for what kinds of behavior get recognized, get treated as problematic, get prosecutable, right? For what kinds of conditions get accommodations in the schools, get insurance companies in my country to pay for the treatments, and so on, right? These have really significant impacts. Think also about the impacts of changing how we understand marriage, right? On people's real lives. So here's a quote from a recent article in the Washington Post that said, again, talking about the way in which these changes of language are tied up with wider spread changes in how we live. Just as the social turmoil of the 1960s generated new vocabulary, turn on, sit in, sexism, this latest wave of activism and upheaval is adding to our lexicon with terms such as safe space, trigger warning, microaggression, and cultural appropriation. Again, some of the most recent ones. But conceptual change isn't just about changing our social lives and these kinds of social and legal categories. Conceptual change is also central to scientific revolutions, major scientific breakthroughs and scientific changes. Think about the differences in how we understand explanation. If you understood it merely teleologically in terms of what... God wanted in creating the world, you're gonna engage in very different sorts of research projects than if you understand explanation in a different sort of way. Think about the changes in the concept of gene, right? When it was first thought of as a kind of unit character of inheritability versus being thought of as a kind of sequence of DNA. Think about the changes in our concept of space and of gravity that were essential for understanding, for enabling the developments in special relativity and of simultaneity. Sorry, for in general relativity, it sounds to anything for special. Think of the change in the concept of species, and you saw biologists discussing this. I, I understand from people in biology, there's 20 something different concepts of species. I mean, different ones for our work in evolutionary biology versus ecology and so on, right? Think again of how our concept of mental illness has evolved, right, to thinking of it as something that's susceptible to this kind of investigation and medicalized treatment. So what I want to sort of emphasize from what's come so far is that words and concepts do matter. They're not just shallow. They matter for what inferences we draw, about how people ought to be treated, what legal rights and entitlements they have, how we ought to behave around them, how legal and social benefits are allocated, how we engage in research and treatment, how we treat people most broadly, and for how we think and live. Now you might say, okay, well that makes sense for those kinds of terms and concepts you're talking about there, but let's get back to philosophy, Philosophers, now some of them, of course, do work on these very applied notions of species, for example, the concept of species, the concept of space. But they also work on much more sort of broad and general concepts, the concept of person, of freedom, for example. Um, And again, when you see them talking about this, they don't say I'm talking about the word and how I ought to use it, right? They'll simply present it as talking about the world. So Plato will tell us what justice is. Locke will tell us what he thinks makes an organism or a person the same over time. Hume tells us what liberty is right, and what necessity is. Arthur Danto, more recently lays out a view of what art is. So again, they present these things as about the world. But look more closely. Quite often in our normal lives, we use words as a way not just of describing the world, but as a way of pressing for changes in how the words are to be used. So, consider a debate on sports radio, this is an example from Peter Ludlow, um, about the list of, the Sports Illustrated list of the best athletes of all time. And the racehorse secretariat got on the list, right? And then there's an argument that ensued on talk sports radio about whether or not this was right, right? Some callers saying, no, secretariat's not an athlete, horses can't be athletes. And others saying, yeah, of course, secretariat's an athlete, one of the best, right? I mean, what's going on there is that not that they differ in their beliefs about the facts about how many races Secretariat won or how awesome Secretariat was at going fast, whatever. What's going on is they have different views about whether the term athlete can or should be used to apply to non-human animals. Right? And you see these all the time. Once you start to notice them, you'll notice them everywhere. And probably the vast majority of our fun debates down the pub. right? Debates that you might have had in the Olympics about whether curling is really a sport. Right? Um, you also see it in sort of negations, like if somebody stands up there and says, a grown woman says, look, I'm not a girl, right? Don't call me a girl. Right? What you're objecting to is the way in which words are being used. And you're objecting by using them, right? What's going on in these cases, according to the analysis given by David Plunkett and Tim Sundell, is what they call metalinguistic negotiation. And that is what looks like factual disagreements about the world turn out to really be practical disagreements about how we ought to use certain pieces of language. Their point is that we don't have to think of speakers as literally expressing incompatible semantic content to see them as literally disagreeing. Right? So the person who says secretary is an athlete, the person who says secretary is not an athlete, if they're using athlete differently, they might not exactly be disagreeing about the facts of the matter, but they are disagreeing practically about how we ought to use the term athlete. Here's a more serious one. right? is waterboarding torture. As you might know, the US State Department has a very different definition of torture than the United Nations. But imagine two disputants arguing about whether or not waterboarding is torture. Again, they might agree on all the facts. They might know how each country defines the term. They might know what happens in waterboarding. They might know about its longer term psychological and physiological effects. And yet when one says waterboarding is torture and the other says it isn't, what they're doing is implicitly negotiating for how the term torture ought to be used but not because they care about the word, but because they care about whether it's practiced or not, and how its victims and perpetrators are treated. Because they care about whether or not we should do this, right? And that's the worldly caring. Again, you see them everywhere once you start to see them. Was the Oklahoma City bombing or all these school shootings back in my country? Acts of terrorism. This is Orlan who gets surgeries done in order to resemble works of art. Is that art? Right? Or go into any of your favorite contemporary art museum? I'm sure you can get in similar debates. Is alcoholism a disease? Is autism a disability? Right? All of these are cases in which we might often be engaged in a kind of metalinguistic negotiation, kind of pressing for how these words ought to be used by using them. So metalinguistic negotiations aren't just disputes about words or just about language. These disputes matter for real-worldly reasons. Right? They are about these people or this horse, these acts like waterboarding, these conditions like autism or alcoholism. And what matters is how we treat them. Here's some hallmarks of metalinguistic negotiations, ways you can sort of recognize them. You can be engaged in this if you find a case that is a dispute, and the disputants don't differ in their factual knowledge or beliefs. They don't say, oh, well, here's what else we need to find out. Let's Google it, or let's do an experiment to resolve this debate. Also, the dispute doesn't go away, even if disputants agree about how the word is actually used. Again, the disputants about torture, they could see how it gets used by the U.S. Department of State and by the United Nations. You could do a survey and find out how people on the street use it. None of that's going to resolve the debate. The dispute also doesn't go away even if disputants come to recognize that they use the term differently. Right? So normally a merely verbal dispute, Right. if I go into the pub and I ask for chips, right, and I'm expecting little crispy thingies, right, thin... Right? And they come out looking like what I would call french fries. I'm like, oh, I asked for chips. And then they explain to me the difference in how this term is used in the two places. Then we can all go home happy and say, oh, I misunderstood. It was a verbal dispute. Right? But these disputes are not like that. Right? These disputes don't go away even if you come to realize that a word is used differently by the disputants. And most importantly, these kinds of disputes are typically worth having, not just trivial or shallow. Because a lot rides on how we speak, how we think, how we conceptualize these kinds of actions, people, conditions. All right, so that's the idea, right? That what looked like debates about the world by metaphysicians can really be these kinds of metalinguistic negotiations, which are in the first instance debates about words, right? But are important and worldly because they matter for what we do and for how we live. Here's a classic philosophical one now, right? So Clive Bell, back in 1913, argued that art is significant form, right, is something sort of visual. When he did that, he knew he was pressing for changes in how we use the term art, to not just use it for stuff that was mimetic, right, that would imitate reality, but rather could include works by Gauguin and Cezanne and so on, just as much as classic works by da Vinci and Cintoretto. A few decades later, Arthur Danto came up with a proposed change to this, said, so no, look, art, don't even define art as significant form. Art is something the eye cannot decry. You could have two objects that look just the same and one be a work of art and the other not. What makes a difference for Danto? is their place in a sort of art historical context designed by artistic theories, right? And so again, this was a kind of proposal for how we ought to use the term art in order to bring into the concept a lot of the work that at his time starting to be hung into, in museums, right? Works like this that could be indistinguishable from mere bits of blue wall, right? Or works like the Campbell's uh, pink, um, soup cans. Right? All right, another classic debate, personal identity. Go back to John Locke, right? The sort of beginning of a lot of the modern debates about personal identity and what a person is, right? He presents it in the sort of object though, what's a person? When is a person identical with another person at a different with person A identical with person B at different times? But Locke puts it this way. He introduces the whole discussion by saying, "Look, what do we want the concept of a person for? Why do we want to track same person? Person is a forensic term," he says, "assigning persons their and actions, their merit and blame, right? and all that we can legitimately be blamed for or credited for is something we remember." He thinks. And this is what motivates his criterion of personal identity. He knows this doesn't fit with how people do identify and distinguish others and themselves, which is by the body, but he thinks this is how we ought to speak given what matters to us in the concept of a person, the concept of attributing praise and blame. Lynn Baker's more recent work on personal identity similarly begins from suggesting that person is a moral category. And so we need a concept of person that's going to track that appropriately. And of course, what we count as the same person matters. Right? It matters for who gets the rights to my stuff. Right? For who's still married to my husband. Right? It matters for when you hold a funeral for me. Right? It matters for inheritance. It matters for also, and of course, also for praise and blame. Look at Hume on liberty. Right? So again, Hume speaks of when an act is done in liberty. He says, "What's liberty is acting or not acting according to the determinations of, of the will, but again, the way he argues for this is not to suggest it's some sort of scientific or quasi scientific discovery, but to suggest that this is the only understanding of liberty that could be relevant to morality. And that's, again, what we want the concept of liberty for, according to Hume. When you get later philosophers like Paul Edwards, who's a hard determinist, arguing that, no, no one's ever really free, right? Again, what he's doing there is pressing for the idea that given the truth of determinism, it's inappropriate to praise and blame people in the way we tend to do. And we should just give up the use of these concepts. He's engaged in a metalinguistic negotiation. Again, much of this season, you see them all over the place. In a lot of contemporary philosophical debates, you can see as implicitly about how or whether we should use certain concepts. Concepts of race or gender, right? These are very much in discussion. Uh, Concept of rights, justice, property, nation, government, law, death, and even bias, right? Can biases be implicit? Do biases have to be sort of explicit matters of speech or behavior? They're all over the place. Again, you might say a lot of those are very specific. You might say, well, that's applied philosophy, but what about the classic concepts of metaphysics? Well, look at those, too. Again, a lot of these, I think, can very naturally be understood as debates about how we ought to use terms for disease or medicine, right, in medical ethics. Species or function in philosophy of biology. In metaphysics, cause, necessity, And again, think about how relevant that is to determining what caused a certain event, to assigning legal praise and blame, insurance payouts, and so on. How we should understand the concept of knowledge what we should require in order to say that someone really knows something how should we use terms for mind and consciousness and even some of the most abstract ones like object and event like right? pure metaphysicians concepts you might think and yet again there we can see the disputing metaphysicians as engaged in disputes about how we ought to understand or employ these concepts or even whether we should and again this can really matter you might think that's not going to have any relevance but if you might remember, after the uh, World Trade Center attacks, there were billions of dollars at stake in insurance payouts over whether that counted as one event or two. Right. So even something as metaphysically obscure as criteria of individuation for events matters for worldly reasons. Now you might say, yeah, okay, but don't other fields do this too? When I first gave a talk along these lines, there was a lawyer in the audience who said, Hang on, this sounds like the work for lawyers, not philosophers, right? Um, There's something to that, right? Often the lawyers have more power with these sort of applied concepts than we do. But my point isn't to sort of carve out something that those who get labeled as philosophers and work in universities as philosophy professors do. What I want to do is to distinguish different projects, right? There's a project of doing empirical work with a set of concepts, studying plants or animals or planets or whatever. There's a project of doing descriptive conceptual work of figuring out how our conceptual scheme actually functions, what our terms actually mean. But there's also this project of doing this normative conceptual work of figuring out what terms and concepts we ought to use and how we ought to use them. And that's in the other fields that are most philosophical end often do, when the courts reflect on how we ought to understand event or person or whatever, when the biologists reflect on how we ought to understand species and so on. So it's a thing, the project that I'm interested in here. Okay, but now you might say, hang on, if what philosophers are really up to a lot of the time, say metaphysicians in these debates, is engaging in this kind of conceptual negotiation, why don't they just say so? Why don't they just put it out that way and not say this is what persons are, but this is how I think we ought to use the term person, right? Um, So let me address that. What are are you pressing for when you're negotiating for these changes in how we use our terms or concepts? It's changes in norms, norms about how we ought to use the term marriage, for example, or the term um, autism or whatever the case may be, the term species. There's various different ways to try to change norms. You can argue explicitly, let's change this norm, I think this norm ought to be changed and here's why. Or you can just engage in direct action, trying to change it by the way you behave. You could try to change the rules about who gets to sit at the lunch counters by just going and sitting there, When Rosa Parks sat on the bus in the front, violating what were the local rules, right, she could have stood out there and said, it's my opinion that we ought to change these bus rules for the following reasons. But given her social standing in this super racist society, nobody would have listened to her. So instead, she sat on the front of the bus, engaging in a kind of direct action to try to force people to notice these norms and to notice the need to change them. So Martin Luther King actually writes about this. i It's a little bit disheveled here. Um, addressing the question, why direct action? Isn't negotiation a better path? And I'll just read the highlighted bits. Nonviolent direct action, he says, seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to so dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. So the suggestion here is that direct action can at least in some circumstances be more powerful than being clear about what you're doing and saying, my point is that I think we ought to change these norms. The effectiveness of direct action doesn't care, it doesn't rely on people caring about what you suggest, as people wouldn't have cared mostly to listen to poor Rosa Parks. Instead, it involves creating a tension in the mind that demands reflection and change. And so, when you see philosophers saying what look like outrageous things, like there is no freedom, or there are no persons, or there are no tables, like some say, what they're doing really can be understood as creating this kind of tension that alerts you to the tensions in our concepts of a material object, or of a person, or of freedom, and forces you to confront them and to do something about it. Why present things then in the discovery mode instead of in the mode of what I'm doing is making a suggestion about how we ought to use the term person? It's a power move, frankly. It's a way of presenting it as if it's a scientific discovery that can't be argued with, and then forcing that kind of reaction. Okay, so what, what has philosophy done? What can philosophy do? Well, at least one thing I think it's clear that philosophy has done and can do is this kind of normative work, answering questions about what should be the case, right? Questions in ethics, questions in logic, questions in epistemology. I've talked about the contribution that I'm here to make as a metaphysician is to say, look, we can also extend this understanding to metaphysics. To right? so seeing some of the work philosophy can do in the guise of metaphysics, as this kind of work in negotiating for what concepts and terms we should use and how we should use them. And this, again, I want to sort of press for the idea, it's potentially transformative. This is not just shallow, uninteresting toying with words. It has the potential to transform how we arrange our social institutions, how we conduct our inquiries in science, right, and how we treat each other. What should philosophy do? Well, again, if this conception of philosophy is taken on board, I think it would preserve a lot of the historical debates and their importance. I've talked to you about um, human liberty and about Bell and Don Juan art and so on. Those can all be preserved in their importance. But it does also require some changes. because I think to the extent that we're not just making a power move, that we want to be transparent about what we're doing, it's gonna require philosophers to be more transparent about their reasons for why we ought to develop this conception rather than that one of person, object, event, freedom, cause, whatever it may be, and not just pretend to be making discoveries. Why should we adopt this view? Well, this is a sort of bootstrapping paper, right? I'm suggesting that one thing philosophy can do is to help us change the way we use our words and concepts, and I'm suggesting this as a way of changing the way we conceptualize philosophy itself. Why? What are my reasons? Well, look, as I tried to show from the beginning, the old model of philosophy, the discovery model, leads you to trouble. If you care about philosophy, if you think that we want to have reasons for understanding it as something doable, valuable, and worthwhile, and that has historical continuities with what's been done in the great works that we read when we study philosophy, this is a good way to go. You don't have this epistemological mystery of how you could be discovering these answers, if not by empirical methods or by conceptual analysis. You don't have even the appearance of a rivalry of science. Because again, everybody's always recognized that the sciences aren't directed towards these ought questions. So they can give important empirical information that can feed into them. Well, this is interesting, right? We said before that the sort of divergence of philosophical views was an embarrassment. The sciences are converging. Philosophy is forever diverging. This looks bad. But now see things this way. If you see philosophy as engaged largely in conceptual engineering, not in the kind of worldly discovery, it's not so bad. Right? Think about work in engineering. You're trying to build a bridge over the harbor. You've got a certain amount of money. You've got to be able to support certain kinds of vehicles of certain weights. Right? It's got to be completed in a certain amount of time. There may be more than one good way to do this. There doesn't have to be a single right answer, So similarly, there might be more than one good way to conceptualize person, or different ways for different purposes, whether you're dealing with a medical purpose or a legal purpose or whatever, right? So the pluralism we get in philosophy can be a matter of creating a space of a whole range of concepts that we might want to choose from for different purposes and we can weigh up against each other. It's no longer an embarrassment. Now it's a matter of riches. And we can also see why falling into a skeptical torpor saying, all oh, these questions are just too hard, we'll never know the answer, let's give up, would be exactly the wrong move. Because to go on in life, we have to go on with some concepts. And we're probably going to go on with some concepts related to, concepts like person and cause and freedom and so on. What we go on with makes a big difference, say freedom, to how we treat our students, our friends, our employees, right? those who do wrong against us. Right? To just give up and never think about it would be exactly the worst thing you could do philosophy is a matter of creating that space to figure out what conceptual scheme we should live with. And on this conception, this reconception of philosophy, it remains deep, interesting, and difficult. Again, because these aren't just linguistic matters. What concepts we keep and reject and how we use them matters. And again, think about the relevance of the different concepts you might use of person, art, death, freedom, event, or cause. And so metaphysics retains its worldly relevance, its depth and its difficulty. And you might think it will never be done because our circumstances are forever changing. And as they do, we need to adapt our conceptual technology like the rest of our technology. So on this model, philosophy should be seen not as a quasi-scientific search for discoveries, but rather as a tool for assessing and transforming what we should do, how we should speak, and how we should live. It's engaged to use the words of um, Charlie Martin, who was a philosopher here at Sydney for many years. I was told he said it, um, he used the phrase, conceptual research and development. And so understood then, philosophy has mattered, it can matter, and it does matter going forward. Philosophy is a matter of taking the time to try to think through in as public and reasoned a way as we can how we ought to use these concepts that are core to how we live and what we do. And that's it.
1: Professor Thomason has kindly agreed to hang around for 20 or 25 minutes to answer questions. So if there's anyone... Oh, hello. My name is Gerard Hosier. Um, In your talk, you were talking about uh, a horse invading the human condition. um, And, you know, um, now we also have AI invading the human condition. Philosophy has applied to the human condition and morality, ethics... in fact everything you have there applies to the human condition, but we accept AI as a parallel or in fact co-partner sometimes. How do we apply um, philosophy to AI and how will it
2: affect us, uh, AI and um, the human condition? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) Um, This is a great exemplification of why these kinds of problems of conceptual choice and development are never over. So as AI goes along, we traditionally identified the concept of a mind with something that humans had, and maybe at most some other higher animals with frames that are kind of similar. AI raises the question about the concept of mind. If you think of the mind just computationally or functionally, then it looks like there's no reason to deny that an artificially intelligent system could have a mind puts pressure on how we understand consciousness. If we understand consciousness just functionally in terms of input-output relations or self-scanning, again, it looks like we ought to allow that an artificial system could be conscious. If you don't want to allow that, what else do you have in mind by consciousness, right, that we think is lacking in those cases? Also raises moral questions, right? Can we then hold artificially intelligent systems responsible themselves, right? Or do we hold their creators responsible? I don't directly have answers to any of those questions. Right? But there are philosophers working in philosophy of mind who are working very hard on addressing those questions. So here's one right, that's come up recently, it's quite interesting, right? Um, if you ask me if I know when my next lecture is gonna be, right? maybe it's not in my head, but it's in my phone, right? We're all in this position a lot of the time. Is that part of my mind? Do I know it because I can easily access it in my phone? Maybe it would be even be quicker than if I tried to rack my brains and remember so and it get access to part it. Of you. It hasn't become part of you. And there are those who hold what's called the extended mind hypothesis who think it has. And that our minds now include these things, and others who don't. So precisely cases like that, again, I don't have a nice neat answer for you, but what I do want to show is the ways that kind of new change in technology puts pressure on our old concepts of mind, of consciousness, of responsibility in new ways. And we have to do something. Right, because whether we count these things as people, as having minds, and so on, it's going to make a huge difference legally, morally, and the rest. We've got to go on somehow. When we go on, we're doing philosophy, like it or not. Right?
1: Um, thank you for your talk. That was great. Um, my question was, is it possible to not do philosophy, and what would that look like, and is that question trite?
2: I suppose, given my conception of what it is, to do philosophy, if you are someone who could manage to just inherit the concepts and terms of your ancestors, of your culture, completely unreflectively, to never think about whether these ones we should keep or get rid of or should be changed, then you might never be engaged in the kind of conceptual negotiation that I'm seeing as at the heart of philosophy. You might do some conceptual analysis, I suppose, or you might just use them without even reflecting exactly on what they mean. I think in this day and age, it's unlikely. I mean, so many of our concepts are vague to begin with, like the concept of a sport, for example, or even the concept of a table, that we're liable to come across cases where I'm not sure where to apply them. Similar to the concept of freedom, right? Even if you think some people are free, maybe you don't know what to do if somebody is drunk or a little bit drunk or had somebody else put something in their drink or right, whatever, right? There's always these cases. So it's hard to not encounter at least these kinds of boundary cases where it's not clear what to say, where you've got to be making some kind of suggestion. And the more and more technology changes, we're all living in a very rapidly changing and evolving world, right? Where loads of the concepts we use every day weren't around when we were born. Think of concepts like website and social media and all that sort of stuff, app, right? You've got to see this kind of conceptual growth happening. So I think it's very unlikely that anyone will get by without actually doing some, but you're doing more philosophy to the extent that you're explicitly and reflectively in, engage in this kind of conceptual negotiation. If you just sort of are happy to blindly inherit a set of concepts, assume those map structure of reality, and go with it, you're less
3: philosophical, at least. Um, Professor, thank you very much. If we're based into the notion of what should we do, and we could, we could agree with that, uh, we could also look at different philosophers or sociologists or anthropologists or whoever who would say the same argument you do and they'd find themselves going back to this situation. Let me describe it quickly. We could have someone like Epictetus, a very wealthy slave who would know what one should do using, using Stoicism. His, the, his, his student, Aurelius... The Emperor, knowing what to do using Stoicism and knowing that we were in a universal commonwealth, but slaves had a special purpose and were excluded from that universal commonwealth. We could go to your Thomas Jefferson. We could go to our Terra Nullia's. In every one of those instances, we'd find that a truth was known and a truth was discovered and there were some inquiries about it, but it was all contextually bound. Which leads me to a question was put to me a few weeks ago by someone who'd been doing some philosophical study. What terrible errors are we making ourselves right now that we're not even aware of? And that's, that's the fundamental issue that metaphysics would have to struggle with, it seems to me. Because we we can only work within the institutions we see in front of ourselves. We're reflexively caught by the male selves. So your comments, if you wish, please. Yeah, thanks, that's a really
2: good question. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a worry I have, and it's commonly raised when I present this kind of view. Of what we can do in philosophy, to the extent that I'm presenting the main questions of philosophy and including metaphysics as the ought questions, what ought we to do? What concepts ought we to use? Then whatever problems we have with resolving these ethical questions, I get to carry over to resolving all these philosophical questions and metaphysical questions. How do we resolve those? Right. Um, so, there's, as you have so nicely articulated, huge divergences of opinion, systematic divergences over place and time. People's opinions seem to be relative to their place and time. I don't do meta ethics. So, let me talk about the relevance to metaphysics. Because I think at least some of these, so there's sort of all things considered questions what ought we to do? How ought we to live? Right? Those are questions that. Whether we can get an answer to them, if it's a matter of discovering an ethical truth or a matter of just figuring out how we ought to live in this context, those are matters for metaethics. But think now instead about questions of how we should use the term causation or marriage or freedom. I do think there's a kind of easier way for those with metaphysics that goes by the following route, not just asking what ought we to do overall where we get stuck in these eternal ethical quandaries, where we think of our language or concept as a tool to perform a certain function for us. So how ought I to build this bridge? Right? Maybe there's not a single answer, but you can see some designs that won't work, that are gonna fall down, like there was a bridge in Miami that fell down a couple months ago. Right? Some designs are gonna be better than others for suspending cargo. Some designs are gonna be better for saving money or for aesthetic beauty, whatever. Well, we can at least be concrete about that. It's not that anything goes, but it's not a one unique answer. We can talk about which bridge will serve the function. So similarly, if we can agree about the function of our terms, that the function of, say, person is to serve as a forensic concept, as Locke put it, then we can ask which of the possible developments of the concept of person would do better for that purpose. Or if we think the legitimate function of the concept of marriage is to protect certain kinds of close relationships with legal standing. In the U.S., it's like 3,000 different laws that hinge on whether or not you're married then you can get grounds for addressing the question of whether marriage should be extended to same-sex couples, if that's what the concept focuses on, rather than trying to discover some essence of marriage. So at least where these kinds of practical concepts are concerned, I think it's not so hopeless. If we can agree on a function, we can see to some extent which kinds of conceptual choices are going to be better or worse at fulfilling that function. It does still leave the deepest moral questions as difficult as they ever were.
1: Thank you. Uh, My name is Ian Bryce. I'm with Sydney Realists. My discussions with philosophers have revealed two disparate views. One is that you should use the findings of science and build upon them, or observations of the real world. The other one is that you must not use any observations of the real world, because otherwise you will be merely practising science. So which camp are you in, please?
2: Good. That's great. I mean, in a way I'm trying to thread the needle there between those two camps. So it depends on which kinds of concepts you're employing, right? So, in a lot of cases, right, there are good scientific reasons favoring the adoption of one concept over the other. Right? So, let me get a good example. Here's a simple example, right? Take the concept of a tree nut, right? Which includes pistachios and hazelnuts and all those things, right? Or take the concept of something called a nut which would also include coconuts and peanuts, nutmeg, donuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, one concept is better than the other there, given the purpose or function of the concept, to the extent that it's being used in prediction and explanation, in prediction about growth and development, in prediction about life-threatening allergic reactions, right, and so on. The biological concept of pre-nut is better. We have empirical reasons to think that it is. What else? Think about the concept of mind. I'm just rereading the late, great David Armstrong's materialist um, theory of mind with the, the conference coming up on that. And his view was that given what we know now about neuroscience, about the way the brain works, right, a concept of the mind in dualist terms like Descartes just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with what we know in general about causation. So we have to engage with the scientists to the extent that our concepts have this kind of function of, he thought of the concept of mind as involving fundamentally a kind of explanation and prediction of behavior, right? So if we have a concept that's involved in a scientific task by explanation and prediction, then obviously empirical results are going to be relevant, right? Results about what artificial intelligence can and can't do are going to be relevant to assessing questions about whether to extend mind to them, right? And yet I still think of the project of engaging in this kind of empirical research. As fundamentally different than the question of what ought we to do given this empirical research? What ought we to do with our concept of mind? How did the concept of mind always function? Did it commit us to there being something like a Cartesian ego or not, and so on? So I think of these as different projects, but when you think of philosophy as fundamentally involved in this kind of normative work of figuring out what concepts we ought to have, it shows why empirical work is sometimes relevant, but not always. It shows why conceptual analysis is relevant because you want to know how the concept does work before you figure out what you should do with it. Right? And it gives you a distinctive project in between the two that's not just a matter of sitting around and reading science journals and waiting for the answers from the sciences.
0: I was just curious on um, the influence that technology and big data is having on um, sort of the framing and categorizing of concepts which then influences the action and if that's sort of had an impact on like the work that's being done in philosophy today?
2: Um, I don't know that much about big data and what the relevance might be, so I'd love to talk to you more about it. I mean, there's areas where I do, I'll tell you a couple of areas where I do know that this kind of issue is coming up. Um, one is in questions about bias, right? So previously, people tended to think about bias as something that was in individuals that was consciously accessible to them, you could sort of reflect on whether you had differential kinds of thoughts about people of different races or genders or whatever. Then there's become in the recent work a lot of questions about whether, say, uh, an artificial system that trains on a whole lot of data or a whole lot of faces and so on and doesn't have any biased algorithms built in can count as bias, and if we should extend our concept of bias to that and the kind of blameworthiness a need for rectification that we think of as going with So that's at least one place where I've seen recent philosophical work being done on this. There's also a lot of work about uh, in epistemology on whether we can, what kinds of knowledge we can acquire via this kind of statistical information and these kinds of sort of long-term learning algorithms and how we should process that. Again, doesn't quite fit the model of you know Bacon's model of science nor of purely logical. Inference. So those are at least two corners, and there's probably more, but it's not exactly my area. So yeah, I'd I'd love to hear more from you about what you think the connections might be.
0: Thank you. Uh, There was one outstanding word there. It was about assessment, and it was assessment. And the gentleman up here who spoke to stoicism, um, just combining that approach with the term of assessment, a really important part of research that I had involved, been involved in. And we were looking at people who'd suffered burn injury. where There was pain, suffering, and obviously changes in body image. And while we used um, Heidegger and various models, we actually went back to get a philosophical position to be able to really use that as a foundation, to be able to interpret the qualitative uh, information that we were gaining from the research that we did. And we used um, Merlo ponty And it was that ability to be able to take that philosopher who had a a huge uh, wisdom in being able to understand skin and all of these aspects and allow us to bring all of that together and really make something that was strong as well as being able to impart much more wisdom to other people as well.
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful and important example. And I think it's another nice exemplification of ways in which philosophy and the empirical sciences can aid each other. So, you know, if you get philosophers like Merleau-Ponty thinking about what the body is, what a body schema is, what perception is, other philosophers of mind thinking about what pain is and so on, that that can inform the kinds of categories when we're in both research and treatment and then that kind of research and treatment can also inform how we ought to understand these kinds of categories, concepts, ways of thinking about the world. And that's a fantastic model and example. Thank you for that.
0: So, um, like, just in your opinion, um, to what extent do you think, like, philosophers should, um, I guess, lead society in terms of, like, its direction and, like, politics and things like that? To what extent do you think philosophers should be forefront of that? And do you think other, um, I guess, other people in other fields should be like linked to that? And like, to what
2: extent do you think it should be in balance? Yeah, good work? question. I think, but yeah, your question recalls sort of Plato's philosopher kings, right? I wouldn't go quite that far. Um, what I think is that those who are in power, whether they're academic philosophers or lawyers or politicians or psychiatrists rewriting the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that we all need to be more reflective about our conceptual choices and upfront about the factors that are leading to them, about why we ought to make those conceptual choices. And too often, I think even in the DSM, right, which is the scientific work, right, what are sort of practical decisions about how we're going to categorize things? right? Are, not, are presented as if they are just discoveries about the real types of autism disorders or whatever it may be. I think one thing philosophers are good at, are trained to be good at, is a kind of conceptual analysis and explication, is thinking through the consequences. I mean, the way I put it to my students usually is, hey, I know the territory of it at least, right? I know a lot about how our concept of a person is related to our concept of freedom and action and autonomy and responsibility and so on. I've thought through a whole lot of the history on that and the ways it's related. And so if you're in touch with a philosopher, if you're trained in philosophy, at least to some extent, in school, in college, whatever it may be, you may be more sensitive to what changes your change in a definition will make down the road. There's a lovely example, um, death, right? So there's this great article by Bernard Goethe et al. Gert's a philosopher where there were these um, medical doctors who were arguing for a change in the definition of death. We need a new criteria of death, like spontaneous breathing and circulation, that's no good anymore, we got the artificial stuff. We need something more precise than we had before because staying on these life-saving treatments is super expensive and you can, if you could harvest organs sooner, you have a much better chance of transplantation. We need to do something. And his gripe with the medical doctors who did this without sufficient, he thought, philosophical reflection That they were insufficiently aware of the way the concept of death functions in multiple ways in our lives, not just in the hospital, but in our funeral proceedings, our inheritance, in our ways of relating to our loved ones and so on. So this is just an example of ways in which a kind of being in touch with this kind of philosophical skill, whether it just comes from independent reflection or doing a PhD, whatever, can be useful to those who are in power of setting policy decisions at hospitals, governmental decisions, international panels on human rights, right? all of that. So to the extent that we think philosophy provides a kind of intensive training in conceptual work, we'll see that skill as useful across the board. It doesn't necessarily mean that the academic philosophers should be the ones in charge.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah. thanks very much for this. Um, my question's around uh, how Eastern philosophy could possibly fit in with this, because I've always noticed it seems to be more of a uh, how one should live one's life type of philosophy than and uh, like stoicism uh, then more Moral questions about what we should all do more of or less of or how we should be thinking how do you see that connecting to your idea of the, the history and uh, I Guess the purpose of philosophy as you've described it here.
2: Yeah, that's a great question I don't know a huge amount about Eastern philosophy. That's not my specialty and when I was in graduate school a very harmful conceptual negotiation for philosophy was underway. that didn't count that as philosophy, so it wasn't taught, right, That's the conceptual negotiation and a harmful one in my view. Um, Here's one thing I know, at least. Um, Some of the ideas, like, for example, the idea that the Buddhist idea that there is no self, right, can be understood very well in these terms. That once we stop thinking in terms as if, there was this sort of enduring entity a self that I should care about more than any other and so that I have interest in over time and so on, that that can really lead very directly to changes in how we live, to what we value, to what we do, to what is done, valued, and so on. So I would think that the connections could be very robust indeed. And again, I'll have to spend some more time to, to learn the details of those traditions, to see more details of how it goes, but it does seem to fit very naturally. Yeah, thank you. And it'd be a nice thing if this conception of philosophy could help unify more what has been done in a lot of the Western philosophy I was trained on and what's done in the Eastern philosophy traditions.
0: So you had the quote by by Martin Luther King about how should like kind of nonviolent opposition will create like turmoil to lead both sides to negotiate. What do you do if both sides refuse to negotiate and kind of get more entrenched in their
2: beliefs? Which seems to be happening with a lot of issues these days. One thing I at least hope that this kind of approach could do is to pull the covers off of some of the entrenched positions by showing what's really going on in a lot of debates as implicitly a matter of conceptual negotiation. Here's a case like I have in mind. Think about marriage debates, right? About 10, 15 years ago, you tend to get what looks like a stalemate. Some people would say, no, look, marriage just is between one man and one woman, that's just what it is. And others would say, no, no, people of the same sex can be married, right? And this looked as if it was a sort of factual disagreement but one that no facts could resolve. And there's if you put it instead in terms of, hey, we've got this concept of marriage, what's it for? Oh, well, look, it plays this legal role in our culture, right? It's tied up with all these benefits and rights and responsibilities. What should we do? Right. Then the pretense that says, but marriage just is this, that's like irrelevant. And the question of what we should do becomes more on the plate and you have to come up with reasons. Well, why okay, maybe that is what the legal concept is now. The question is, should we keep it or not? What are the reasons on each side? Let's get upfront about those. And bringing the lid off of that, the debates that look like worldly factual disputes and seeing what's really going on here as kind of pragmatic disputes, I hope can at least lead to breaking some impasses and showing what kinds of criteria are and aren't relevant to resolving them and moving ahead.
1: Well, on that hopeful note, it's, <laughs> it's time to close down the proceedings. Please join with me in thanking Professor Thomason so much for <laughs> the wonderful talk. Yeah.